Welcome to the Habits of Leadership podcast, brought to you by Cut Through Coaching, helping leaders and their teams to thrive, professionally and personally. Hello and welcome to episode 64 of the Habits of Leadership podcast. My name's Dan Hasler from Cut Through Coaching and before we kick off today's episode, just a gentle reminder that enrolments for the Habits of Leadership Academy 2022 cohorts are now open. The Academy sees us get together once a month with around about a dozen leaders or so to explore the ideas and the themes that we cover in the podcast with a particular focus on what it means for you in your organization and the challenges that you face. If you'd like to learn more about the Academy and join us in 2022, then head over to habitsofleadership.com and click on the Academy page there. Now, my guest today is David Price. David Price helps organizations and people make sustainable change happen. He's the author of two books. His first, Open, How We'll Work, Live and Learn in the Future, was an Amazon bestseller. And his most recent book, The Power of Us, How We Connect, Act and Innovate Together, looks at all his research and his work with all manner of organizations and leaders ranging from Fortune 500 companies, innovative NGOs and educational organizations. Price was able to put together a unique how-to guide for organizational leaders and his conclusion is simple. Our ability to collaboratively figure things out doesn't rely on an individual's creativity or flair, but how to create a culture that makes ingenuity a daily lived experience. David is a highly sought after speaker, trainer and masterclass leader. And in 2009, having been at the forefront of innovation in organizational learning for over 30 years, he was made a member of the Order of the British Empire by Her Majesty the Queen. I feel like that we should be having some trumpets or some fanfare. But given that Pricey is also a really good mate of mine, we're going to get rid of all of that. I'm just going to welcome you to the show. Pricey, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure, Dan. It's, it's been a while since we've seen one another. <laughs> it is. It's also been a while since we've known each other. I, I yeah. was doing some maths. I reckon it's close to about 10 years that we first met. Really? At a, um, I think so, yeah, wow. at, um, at a teach meet. Remember, remember yes, those? I a do teach remember meet. it. And, I remember the actual yeah. event as well, yeah. Yeah, and I was in the audience, and you—I uh, th- I think I might have presented as well, um, but you were—you were presenting, and you made a passing reference to golf, and so I thought, right, and I sidled <laughs> up again uh, alongside you um, at the end and said, "How do you fancy a round?" And and that was the start of a quite well, a, a great friendship, I, w- yep. I would say. Yeah, it's, absolutely. You know, it's great that we. Uh, we often catch up with each other when we're in uh, the various parts of the world that we yeah. find ourselves, but but not so much um, not so much over the past two years for obvious no. reasons. And I just thought it, we can't really start any conversation without just checking in and and seeing how how you're navigating. I know in in England that's um, certainly different than it is here in Australia at the moment. But um, yeah, how, how have you experienced the past uh, eighteen months or so? Well, I think we are probably not that much different from a lot of people of a of a particular kind of political mindset which is i think you know what i refer to england now as player island because it 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 appears as though we've reached a point where we just go well it's got to run its course so let's do that um so you know figures today what were the 37,000 new cases and 216 deaths nobody talks about it it's really bizarre um, having said that, every, I think every country in the world is, is going to have to face up to life, you know, when you do start to open up. Um, 
And of course, it would have been so much better if we'd vaccinated fully before we started opening up. But we've got a government that really was just more concerned about the economy. So it's been difficult. It's been very divisive. Um, you know, I was I was at a college uh, two days ago and there was a sizable number of young people there were anti-vaxxers. And, you know, you ask them where they're getting their data from and it's it's Facebook, you know. And it, mm. it still strikes me as just bizarre that young people who I'd expected to be a lot more circumspect about that kind of stuff. Um, but we... we Circ- circumspect about getting your information from Facebook. Exactly, exactly. Because they're, they're supposed to be literate in yeah. that space. And yeah. and it's it's clearly not the case, you know. And I, I even did a bit of a session around that, like how, how do you know something's true um, just because you read it on the internet? And... Yeah, it's 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 a little bit scary, I must say, because you know the the anti-vax brigade is not confined to any one country. You know, every country seems to have them, and uh, it doesn't seem to matter what you say to those kind of people; they refuse to accept that the you know the logic of the scientific evidence tells you to get vaccinated. It's mm. it's strange. So as a result, mm. thirty-seven thousand new cases that we'll have today. I would bet. Around twenty-five to twenty-eight thousand of those will be unvaccinated, um, and and they're the people who are ending up in the hospital. But you know, you can't tell them. No. So one of the things that I do know has happened over the past eighteen months, and I've done something similar, is um, with with the advent of not being allowed to go anywhere, it gave us the opportunity to both write books and. Mm-hmm. What we, what I'd like to kick off with is is your new book. Um, although you're telling me, you know, it's been out a year, but it it feels like a new book, given that um, yeah. you know it's you're now able to get out there and, and share it face to face with people. But um, the new book, the the power of us. Um, I, I I was I, because I know you and I know um, your wife. You know the story about the fact that the the book is a result of a bet um, placed by your wife to you um and and I, I was really interested with that because you you only make a passing reference to it in the introduction there so I was keen to sort of get yeah. to the genesis of yeah. the book the power of us um you find yourself in America at an event and the bet is thrown down can you can you take us take I us can. back to that spot so I'll, I'll just wind it back a little bit which is yeah. As you know, uh, I've got a musical background and, and in, when you're in a band, the thing that you fear more than anything is the second album, you know, because everything you've written up at that point has gone in the first album. Um, and so that second album syndrome is, is very real, but I also think the second book syndrome for, for writers is real. And for a long time after Open came out, I was, you know, wondering, well, have I got anything else to say? Is that it? Um, but... Slowly, a few ideas started to come through, and as a way of testing it, uh, I, I I came across the um, South by Southwest Festival, which is it's a bit like the Edinburgh Fringe, you know, except it's for hipsters. You know, all the tech mm. companies go there. It's it's uber cool. And, and, and you and me exactly. <laughs> I was I was the oldest person there by some margin, but um, I I had submitted this proposal and uh i think i think i called it something like say hello to your new best friend people powered innovation but but that was it largely and like edinburgh we were my wife and i were sitting outside the venue where i was supposed to be speaking 500 seats 
and there wasn't anybody there. It was just us. And I said to her, oh, this is, this is just going to be awful. And she said, no, no, give, give it a chance. It'll be okay. It was about five minutes before I was due to speak. And I said, listen, if, if more than 10 people turn up, I'll turn this into a book. And she said, right, you're on. As it happened, 500 people turned up. They were turning people away. But what I also did was I said to people, um, and I knew they'd all be kind of, you know, uber cool about the whole thing. But I said, listen, if anything resonates, stick around afterwards and let's just have a conversation. And about 120 people or so, just we just formed a big circle and we talked about our varying experiences of this thing that at then I was calling people-powered innovation. Um, but it, 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 it gave me sufficient confidence to say, okay, I think there is something in this. And people said, yeah, you should, you should write a book about it because nobody has done yet. And back then, you know, people-powered innovation, what was the, I mean, I guess it's almost self-evident, but I also know that, you know, people-powered would mean different things to different people and certainly the word innovation, um, everyone knows what it means, but everyone's got their own definition. So it, just before we even think about, you know, as you fleshed it out and dug deeper into the ideas, back then, what was the, what was the, the premise in a nutshell yeah. um, that, that got these 120 people to stick around and, and chat with the oldest bloke at South by Southwest. <laughs> um, I think it was a, uh, th it was a series of fairly random examples. Um, you know, literally I was kind of throwing stuff against the wall and see, see what was going to stick. And one of the things that um, people seem to pick up on is the story of George Crumb, and uh, you may have heard this, but maybe your listeners haven't. But George Crumb basically was a, a chef in a um, Afri African American chef in a restaurant um, in Saratoga, Saratoga Springs, New York State, and he um, he had a bad day this day, and he clearly was he, he was renowned for his bad temper. So this guy turns up, tired businessman. He's had a bad day. He's exhausted. And he just wants to get his dinner and go to bed. So puts his order in, but he asks for um, a plate of what was then known as potatoes in the French style. Eventually became known as French fries. But then it was considered the height of chic to have your potatoes sliced quite thinly. So he had asked for this. George Crumb had no idea what he was talking about. It all seemed a bit of foreign nonsense. So he had a, a, a stab at it, sliced these potatoes, fried them, put them on the plate. And the guy said, I'm not eating this. It's disgusting. The, 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 the slice too thick and they're all soggy. Take it back. So he tried to make them a bit thinner, tried to make them a bit drier, send it back out. Same thing happened. He said, I'm still not eating this. It's rubbish. Went back. By this point, George was really furious. So he threw these very, very thin sliced potatoes into the deep fat fire, burned them to within an inch of their lives and took it out on the plate, expecting the guy to just blow up and storm out. And he loved them. And of course, they'd invented the potato chip, or the, the crisps, as we call them. And it became a really big thing. And what I was saying in South by Southwest was, well, first of all, George made a big mistake not putting a patent out on that, because it, it's a $6 billion a year industry in the US alone. But secondly, who actually invented it? Was it George as the chef? Or was it the, the, the consumer who said, this is not how I like it? And I used it as a little bit of an example of what I call the two different mindsets that I think 
we we have. There are the user innovator mindsets, and Eric von Hippel's written about this an awful lot. He's a professor at MIT, and I was amazed to read that you know fifty three percent of of all new inventions or services are created by the users, not the producers. Um, you know, mountain bikes, skateboards, uh, mobile banking, you name it. A, a, an awful lot of things have come from users being dissatisfied with what they've got and thinking, well, I could do a better job than this. Um, and the the point I try to make in the book, because as I, as I looked into the difference in these mindsets, it was clear that um, it, it isn't about having one mindset above the other. The producer mindset is very much fixed on how can we get a predictable outcome? How can whatever it is that we're making or the service that we're providing, it's going to be consistently good? Whereas the user innovator is really just having fun and uh, messing about with stuff. So the example I use in the book is um, the Homebrew Computing Club in what later became known as Silicon Valley. And I think how to hang on to that user innovator mindset is really difficult. And the two Steves, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, used to go along to this homebrew computing club because I, I, I tell young people this and they, they don't believe me, but there was a time when you couldn't actually buy a computer. You had to make one. And these guys were, were inventing the personal computer. And they did it on the back of uh, an open source approach to knowledge so that the 70 or 80 people who used to go every week made all their, their designs freely available. The moment that Wozniak and Jobs realized they had the Apple Classic on their hands, that's when their mindset shifted. So they closed Apple down in terms of the code. They said, we're not going to listen to users. We don't need you know, market research. We're just going to make great products. And I, I think it's a very hard thing because the majority of producers have started as user innovators, just like the majority of teachers started off as being students. But it's a very difficult thing the longer you become a producer to put yourself in the mindset of the user. And so that's the that was the the nutshell. People stuck around, and you felt there's enough here, or, or certainly there was enough of a seed to, uh, yeah, to plant. And, and this is the thing, Dan. It it is one of those when I tried to explain what Open was about, which was my first book. People would say, "Just give me thirty seconds." And I, I just couldn't, I couldn't summarize it in 30 seconds. But now with this book, every time I talk to somebody, they'll go, oh, I know who you should talk to. So my mate Ken, who you know, up in Melbourne, played golf with, he was yeah. saying, when are you going to finish this book? And what's it about anyway? And I told him. And he said, and this guy ends up in the book. Um, he knows a guy called Matt Botel. And Matt has, has done the most incredible thing. He makes prosthetic limbs for for people who've been you know subject of mining uh, accidents landmines and what was amazing about when covid struck was that he went from saying i need to make these to a fairly high quality and i'll sell them as cheap as i possibly can i think there's something like ten dollars but that was no longer possible during covid so he then said here's the designs make your own you've all got access to 3d printers so just make your own and and that's what he's done. And he's he's done amazing work. These are things that commercially you'd pay thousands of dollars for. And they reckon in Africa and you know developing world, you can make a prosthetic limb according to Matt's design for about a dollar. So there's always 
people who, who someone says, you need to talk to them because they are doing that. So it's really easy. When COVID happened and somebody said, what's your book about? I said, you know, that Mercedes Formula One team who started working with University College London to create a new continuous breathing machine? It's that. And people go, oh, yeah, I'll get that. So it's been so much an easier sell in that regard. And and the, the why do we need it? <laughs> you know, so I remember when the publisher, uh, you know, yeah. said to me, what's it about? I said, oh, it's a leadership book. And I said, to be honest, I don't even know why we need another <laughs> leadership book. Like, you yeah. know, like, Just and then the I realised the pub... <laughs> Yeah, and then I realised the publisher doesn't need to be hearing why do we need more books, you know. So I changed my tack a little bit. But yeah. I'm wondering, like, you know, what's what's the call to action, or what's the the rationale between? Because because it, you know, it, I can imagine sometimes when when you're proposing this idea of user led and or, or certainly mm. massively informed and 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 you know the power of us, there'd be a, a a large swathe of the population going whoa 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 pricey no 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 keep that to yourself mate because I kind of like it the way it is yeah. I'm in control I'm calling the shots what's the case for change what's the case for this because um, I know that you articulated it quite nicely in the book but why should why should we care about the power of us well uh, on for one reason because it's going to happen anyway so as a producer you can either try to stop it or you can ignore it which is a fatal mistake because these people don't go away or you can try and work with them so give you another example tim omer is a guy uh, it consultant who's also got type 1 diabetes um but he's a bit of a nerd so he tried to get a continuous glucose monitoring machine who are prohibitively expensive he thought, how hard can that be? So he bought a secondhand one, put it in a tic-tac box and, and, and gave away the design to a group of people called Night Scout, who, who's got a hashtag, which is we are not waiting. And Night Scout is a worldwide uh, collective of parents whose kids have got diabetes. So they then said, well, we could make our own. And, and that's what they did. Now, there's all kinds of regulatory obstacles that they're facing. They're now trying to, to, to build the world's first artificial pancreas. And it's a race now between the big pharmaceuticals and, and this bunch of amateurs as to who will get there first. The, the, the point that I was trying to make in the book was just ignoring these people is not going to put them off because they don't need you anymore. They can, you know, they can make stuff... 3D printers are $400. So, and, and access to the means of capital through peer-to-peer lending sites, I mean, that's, that's just really easy now. So all the things that used to stop these little you know, men in sheds inventing something from taking it to scale, they've now gone. And, and the reason why I rewrote the book in the light of COVID was what I was seeing played out on a daily basis were examples of this when it was taken to scale. You know, whether that was, you know, kids in schools making face shields from designs that they downloaded from the web or whether it was, um, you know, the, the thousands of scrub hub groups who were making PPE. Whilst at the same time, our government was spending fortunes buying 10 years out of date PPE from Turkey, you know, and there's just been so many examples of this. So the phrase I use in the book is communities are now outperforming bureaucracies. And I, I, I genuinely believe that to be the case. So the challenge as a society, as producers, is, you know, what do we do with that? And, you know, clearly my recommendation in the book is you need to work with these people. You, you need to work with them, not against them. 
So if we use that, you know, the the the, the community, the bureaucracy, the community, and and use that kind of like as a metaphor for organizations you know within organizations there is you know broadly speaking perhaps a bureaucracy a leadership mm -hmm. group uh, people steering the ship and a community for employees workers are you suggesting that because some people listening to this could go yeah pricey that's fair enough but i don't i'm not in the prosthetic leg business i'm not yeah. in the uh, ppe business i'm not in the tech business because a lot of this you know i i, I sometimes um, you'll see people kind of go, yeah, yeah, but that, that's kind of like them guys. You know, that's them. I'm, I'm, a, I'm an accountant or I'm a, I'm a teacher or I'm a, um, you know, I'm, I'm a, a project leader or whatever it might be, but they don't necessarily draw the, 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 um, the correlation, I guess, between yeah. those larger scale movements that get a lot of coverage and then perhaps those smaller movements, which might be happening even without them knowing, you know, employees hacking the way they work, for example, yeah. in an accountancy company. Um, I'm wondering what what you're thinking around that is, given, of course, the the the, the arrival of the Power of Us agency in which you go into organisations mm. and, and work with them on that level. What what are you seeing there? Is it is it just the tech companies that you're working with? No, is one of our earliest clients they make um, bespoke furniture, garden furniture. Um, really beautifully crafted oak furniture. Um, and, and we've had a range of people, but we also work in the not-for-profit sector. And, you know, just yesterday, I was working with a bunch of educators and I said, you know, it's, it's odd, isn't it, that the two largest public demonstrations the world's ever seen, which is the, the Greta Thunberg Friday strikes and the March for Our Lives, um, Parklands, Florida kids, these two largest public demonstrations were organized by a bunch of school kids and they did it because they're globally networked. They've learned from how social movements operate. And I say, if they can do that, do you not think they're worth talking to about what kind of education they'd like to have fostered upon them? And, you know, people, are, it's too comfortable for us to go, oh, we know how this works. And uh, if we take our National Health Service, they got very excited about the books and people who work there because they said, well, that's exactly the problem that we're dealing with. Generally speaking, the surgeons and the consultants are revered and their, their word is God. So no one undermines them. As a result, they don't understand what it's like to, to be the patient. And there's a chapter you know, in the book which is exclusively devoted to medical kind of examples of user innovation for no other reason than that's that's when needs most, you know, and, and you find that when people are at their most desperate. I interviewed a, a, an oncologist and he said, you know, he said, I, I, I used to dismiss all this quack stuff and the clinics in Mexico where people were, you know, eating chia seeds and whatever it was, thinking that that was going to cure the, the cancer. He said, and then my brother got um, a brain cancer. He said, and suddenly I found myself on those websites thinking, maybe there's something in this. And he said, you know, I, I recognize that we, we, we don't spend enough time with patients, talking to them and helping them look after their own health. So I, I don't think, and the, the point that I try to make in the book is, um, it, it isn't that one of these mindsets is somehow inherently superior to the other. We do need the producer mindset. I mean, you know, that I've, I've had quite a few health scares. And on one of them, 
where I got severe septic shock, I had to be rushed into the operating theatre. At that point, Dan, I did not want the surgeon standing around with the nurses saying, has anybody got any novel ideas as to what we could do with? No, I just wanted him to go, right, this is what we do. You all know what to do. Bang, 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 stitch him back up, get him out of here. And so there's a place for that producer mindset. But I think companies get into trouble. If you think of Australian examples, Billabong, Quicksilver, I think they they came unstuck as, as an organization because they forgot what it was like to be part of that surfing community. And I think this is this is where people go wrong. You know, Kodak, for example, the, the digital camera was invented in Kodak by one of their engineers. The the board of Kodak laughed at it. They said, there's never going to be a time when people will want to watch you know, photos on a screen. They couldn't see it any other way than their producer mindset. So the, the and and plus and plus it went completely counter to their big profit making machine, exactly. which was print and ink. You so know, yeah, know, so they didn't they didn't want to believe it almost. You know, yeah. And I, the example that I use in the book of of how some people have held on to that community is Patagonia. You know, because Yvonne Chunard, who who set up Patagonia with his wife, he. He never really wanted to be a producer. And so he's always kept this mentality within the organization, this mindset of we're here, A, to save the planet, B, to make some outdoor clothing, but C, to have a good time. So he still to this day, they, they have this saying, when the surf's up, the pens go down. And basically, they just close the office down. When there's, you know, they're two, two blocks from the Pacific Ocean and they're all surfing dudes so as soon as that happens, they just go out. Now, what does that mean? It means that Yvonne Chunard trusts his people sufficiently to go, listen, I know you'll make up that time elsewhere. I trust you. And that that is why it all comes back to culture in the end, because you and I have spent huge amounts of time trying to make people, in inverted commas, more innovative. And yet we nearly always end up doing that within a culture that's broken. And you can't get the best out of people if they're operating in a, a, a loss, of, loss of trust organization or there's no equity within the organization. So that's really what I say in the book, which is get the culture right and innovation will naturally happen. Which opens the door beautifully to how do you get the culture right? Because, mm. <laughs> you know, it, as you're speaking there, you know, I just I have these flashbacks of these phone conversations and Zoom calls where I'm, I'm chatting with a leader and they're saying, Dan, you need to fix them. I need you to come and fix my people, you know, and, and you know, yeah. how, <clears throat> when, when we're talking about trust and we're talking about um, autonomy and, and ownership and agency and you can, you know, I, I believe that you can go surfing and do your job. It's not an either or, yeah. you know, you, we can we can have a, a culture which embraces well-being and high performance. Yeah. Um, how do we go about culture and perhaps even starting with the, the opposite of that, what do people get wrong when it comes to talking about or living a culture or trying to create a new culture? What have you seen there? Yeah, well, as as I, you know what it's like yourself, as you're writing a book, you, you don't really know where it's going, but but you're trying ideas out and you and halfway through the book, as I've started to look at all these great organizations that I'd visited over three years, be them schools or WD forty or um Brewdog, that's a, another example of an organization. And what I found was they all had a number of things in common, which were cultural. So I, I reduced it to eight key elements 
which just so that I can remember in my adult dotage, um, forms the acronym of TEAM. So trust and transparency, engagement and equity, autonomy and agency, uh, mastery and meaning. And it isn't enough just to say, oh, well, we've got the motivational posters. You know, they're, they're part of our values. We do that. What I see when, when people get this wrong is that they, they do the opposite of, of what I discovered as I was writing the book is a thing called Hugel culture. Oh, you're going to say, what's Hugel culture? It's a, it, what's Hugel culture? It's a, German, <laughs> it's a German concept, which is beautifully demonstrated by a, a, an Aussie guy on uh, YouTube videos. And I hope people do look, look him up because it's a, he's hilarious. But put simply, and, and you know, your life can't help but intervene when you're writing a book. So I was getting the house renovated and I had some raised beds. And my builder said, what are you going to put in these beds? And I said, well, I thought I'd just put some topsoil. And he said, that's going to cost you a fortune. So that's how I came across Hugo Culture. I was looking for alternatives to just throwing a bunch of compost in your, your raised bed. Hugel culture works on the basis that if you fill the bottom of raised beds with organic matter, bulky organic matter, you know, tree stumps, and it just so happened out the back of our garden, the, the, the farmer had chopped down a bunch of trees, so it was there. If you fill it with that, then what happens is, over subsequent years, you don't need to be putting fertilizer on the top, you don't need to be feeding it, because it's being fed from below. So that was the analogy that I wanted to get across in the book is if you have an approach to culture in your organization, which is people powered, which is fed from the bottom, then you won't have to do the exhausting work. And I was that leader. You know, I was the guy who used to come into work every day and I'd had 10 great ideas before breakfast. And I'd say to people, I've got a great idea. This is what we should be doing. You know, pretty soon, people stopped having ideas of their own because they just thought, well, he's going to come in and tell us what to do. And so, I, you know, it was quite, I, I had to face up to some difficult things in my own uh, approach to leadership. But what I was trying to say was that idea of what I call trickle-down culture. So the leader says, this is the culture that we need to have in this organization. It's exhausting putting that into place because you're the person who's having to police it, you're having to monitor it, and it never works anyway, because if if you think you know what the culture is, the chances are, unless you're you know, measuring it, and that's one of the things we do with the agency, which is to get everyone to complete this cultural audit, often the gap between your perception of what the culture is and what actually is, which is not the, the words on the motivational posters, but what's in people's heads and hearts. You know, what are the things that they say when you're not around? That's what the culture is. So you have to start from there, not from the culture that you deem to be the culture that you want in the organization. And I mentioned Brewdog earlier on, and what went wrong with Brewdog over the summer was precisely that, that they didn't know what their culture was. They were telling people that it had a great culture. All the while, they had 100 disgruntled employees who eventually wrote an open letter detailing all the toxic culture. Now, when you're a company like Brewdog that has built its reputation on creating not just customers but fans, and then they go a step further and they say the collaborators, and that was true. They did all that. I'm one of 200,000 people who have put a little bit of money into Brewdog. 
And it seemed... On- for the benefit... Sorry, Pricey, yeah. for the benefit of Australians that just drink Fosters and Forex, Brewdog is um, what? Brewdog is a Scottish craft brewery, which has now got a brewery in Brisbane. So you, if you haven't yet seen it in your off-licenses, you soon will. Um, it's and, and this is part of the problem, that it's expanding at a huge rate and it has to take the community with it. One of the issues that, you know, Billabong lost its community, um, I believe Apple will lose its community um, because of its closed approach to, to knowledge. But Brewdog was doing really well building that community and engaging them in decisions. What should we do about going carbon neutral? What should we do about the next batch of beers that we brew? So you were genuinely being consulted. But when it goes wrong... And when it's found to be, you know, essentially just a surface approach to culture, then that that community will turn, and and they did, and it's it's, I think it's touch and go, how 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 Brewdog will will come out of this without losing their CEO because it became a cult of personality. They feature in the book as a as a, a good example. Yep. Did you get the sense that they just put on a really good show of convincing you they were doing that? Or do you think there was a shift? There was a moment, or or there was, maybe it's too too blunt to say there was a moment, but over time it changed because of that they started looking elsewhere. Yeah. And I'm wondering how people, if there was a shift and a change, how people guard against that. Yeah, it's a great question. I, I mean, I can only speak from my personal experience of it which was you know i'm part of that community but i went up to ellen the the headquarters in in aberdeenshire and i interviewed james watt the ceo but i also interviewed a woman called Alison green who looking back now in hindsight she was she was head of hr and she was keeping the ship afloat it seemed to me um and she did say you know james is like he's he's very driven and Sometimes people think it's a it's Disneyland that they're coming to work in, but it's actually a high performing environment. Having said all that, um, it was clear because I went the day I went there, there was a bunch of home brewers who were just beer aficionados. I didn't know what they were talking about, but James Watt got really heated in this conversation about how you brew your own beer, and and I thought this is not a guy who's doing this primarily to make money. I think he he genuinely has a love of making really good beer. Um, Where it went wrong, it seems to me, is that in the push for growth, and who knows, did he start to think, Craigie, we've got 200,000 people now in our fan club, we better grow the business? Or or was it just that he was always going to do that and people just... um, What's been interesting, Dan, is you're, you're referring, I think, to an article that I wrote yesterday... And I thought, I'm going to share this on the BrewDog forum. And the reaction was split completely down the middle. I had half the people saying, well, you're just typical of people who you'll take out a share in BrewDog without really understanding the organization. And then there was another half saying, I'm glad you've written about this cult of personality that was going on in the organization because it became all about the leader. Um, And... I, I, I suppose the learning for me over this past week has t- to see that it's quite a thin line between being a fan and being a cult member because some of these people refuse to accept that there was anything wrong 
that was going on. Even though the evidence is there, even though James Watt, the CEO, has admitted that he, he, he perhaps, you know, was a bit misogynistic, that they were they were pushing people too hard. So it's 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 a complex position, but I do think I admired what Brewdog did. I still do. They got a lot of things right, and they've now had to. I think they've had to shed this. They they had this punk um, ethic that they were they were about to disrupt the Fosters of this world and all the big you know mega breweries, um, and and they did some pretty radical things in doing so. But there comes a point when you've got you know headquarters in America and in China and in India and Brisbane and Scotland, you you can't keep calling yourself a punk. And now they've had to appoint um, a CEO who used to run Asda, it's a big chain of supermarkets in the UK, who's effectively mentoring this guy. And, you know, I can't be too hard on the two guys who set it up because they had zero experience of running a business. And within 10 years, they've built a billion-dollar business. That's some achievement. But I just hope that they take this time out now to pause and ask themselves, who are they doing it for? And I wonder if you've kind of touched on something there, the amount of people who find themselves in a position of responsibility and leadership who actually were just good at what they did. You know, these guys were good at brewing beer and they were good, let's say, they were good at getting a community together. But what does it then mean, you know, for argument's sake, to be strategic while staying true to your original vision? Let's just say that hypothetically, you know, how do you actually do that? And and there is a skill to that. And I also think there's a skill... There are leadership skills. This is why we need more leadership books, you know. But more than that, we need people, you know, being deliberately mindful more regularly than they are because they're often too busy to be. But more regularly than they are to keep checking back in. So, I'm, I'm, I want to throw a a real challenge at you here because you know, with you, with your background in and the work that you've done in education Mm. and and also in the corporate. Um, space as well and and this reflects some things that that I um, am, have experienced over the past few years in, in my work is you find yourself working with a group of people a team and there is a leader of that team and they want to do all this stuff right whatever you know we really want to be innovative we want to have you know great psychological safety this that, and the other. but for whatever reason above that team there's another <laughs> There's another force, you know. So in education, let's say it's the Department of Education, you know, in in um, in, in a big corporate business, perhaps it's either the, the the national leadership team, or perhaps it's Asia Pacific, or perhaps it's even global. And and I guess the question I've, I have for you um, is when the forces are coming down <laughs> from above, and let's you know there may be more about the old style stuff. Mm-hmm. What are some things that teams within teams can do to create a culture because when we talk about organizational culture i might argue that you know within different departments have micro cultures yeah. within that culture I'm, I'm curious as how we if, if we're dealing with bigger forces how do we go about creating a, a, a people-led power mm-hmm. of us type culture regardless of where we are pricey regardless of of my hierarchy you know my title my email signature what do i do how do i go about it yeah i think it's often the little things so uh, to give you a specific example um i was working with one ceo and um he it was clear that he was just swamped he couldn't see the wood for the trees this company was just about hanging on through covid um and it as a result of 
his his determination just to keep everybody in the job for all the right reasons. He was trying to just make sure that nobody lost the job as a result of the pandemic. But he was he he, he was trying to do too much himself, and in doing that, he lost the trust of of his people because resentment had grown up. You know, you could see he was thinking, "I'm working so hard." Why aren't they? Why don't they see it as as important as I do? I don't I don't get it? The the best example of the kind of leadership that I think we need is 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 an Aussie guy from Sydney, and that's Gary Ridge, who's the uh, the chair and CEO of the WD Forty company. And it's really interesting that you know you mentioned WD Forty, and it's one of those iconic brands. You know, everyone has a can of it under the sink, and it it it, it for a long while. It it was only a single product. That was the whole company was based around that one can, and as a result of that, they had grown up a culture whereby they was they were basically sitting on a river of money. You know, all virtually all the money that they made went in dividends to shareholders, but they weren't thinking about well, what's next? Gary comes in, starts encouraging them to be innovative, and then discovers that the reason why they can't be innovative. It's because they're so terrified of making mistakes. Here they have the brand leader. You know, it's like once you've written, I don't know, Hey Jude, what are you going to write after that? <laughs> you know, and and that was that was what was stopping people. So he he he's always been a believer in the little things. So he said every time someone came into his office and said, "Gary, I've screwed up," he would say, "No, you haven't. You've had a learning moment." And all I ask is that you share that learning moment with with all your colleagues and then we won't we won't make that same mistake again and he said it took a while you know people had to feel secure in his leadership that he wasn't going to throw them under the bus and just recently i mean he's he's an amazing guy because he gives me so much time and here he is you know ceo of a, of a massive multinational corporation but i said gary do you mind if we record an interview and he said, yeah, how much time do you want? Anyway, we're talking about what he was doing as a result of COVID. And he said, you know, and I thought he put it beautifully. He said, we've we've taken a slightly different view to hybrid working. He said, I know some people who've installed surveillance software on the on the people's laptops so they can tell if they're actually working or not. I, I just find that horrific. It, just nothing signals a lack of trust uh, better than that. But he said... We don't call it homeworking. We call it working from where. And he said, I've worked in a lot of ways around the world. I've worked on airplanes. I've worked in hotel rooms. So that going forward is going to be our future. So what we've said to our people is we will make the WD-40 premises as safe as we possibly can. But if you would rather feel like you'd be safer by not coming in, you never have to come into the office again. And I just think that that's the kind of humility that we need in our leaders where they genuinely are. And, and this has been the interesting thing about COVID is that because of Zoom meetings and all of that, CEOs actually know more about their people now since they stopped coming into the office because they switch on the Zoom and they see the kids running around. They go, oh, I didn't realize you had kids. Or they see, you know, the, the, the mess that the house is in and, and they can tell. That person's running on empty. When they're just 
rocking up to work every day and you've got a culture where, you know, it's it's kind of slightly competitive, then those kind of issues haven't come to the fore. That's not to say that there aren't some people who would still say, well, I don't care about that. You're still going to have to, you know, do what we expect you to do. But when we did the, we did a, a COVID survey as to how things had changed, we interviewed, um, well, we surveyed a bunch of CEOs in various kind of organizations. And the things that they come up with were not any of the things that you would have come up with, say, 10 years ago. So they were talking about, we need to look after our people's mental health and well-being. We need to connect much better. Um, we need to think about how we can actually um, keep people in touch with what's going on in the office and build that culture, even though they might not be there. There was a lot of deep thinking going on. And one of the CEOs that I spoke to, I thought summarized it really well. He He's in charge of one of the biggest advertising agencies in the UK. And I was I was in the, the headquarters and there was just the two of us in there. And I said, so tell me, where is everybody? And he, he laughed and said, well, they're all working from home. And I said, it's, it's, does that cause a problem? He said, well, it does because, you know, we, we have to have these ideation sessions. We get a new client. We need a new campaign. He said, it's really hard on Zoom. I, I need them to be in the office. But he said, I can't just tell them. Get yourself back in here. It's too sensitive. People are too raw about the whole thing. Similarly, we, I said to him, if somebody had said to you 10 years ago that you as leader would have to have a position on, I don't know, transgender rights, would what would you say? He said, I'd say it's none of my business. But it's everybody's business now. Leaders have got a responsibility for the bigger social purpose. And so all of these challenges to leadership makes it a really tough job right now. If I go back to... Um what you said almost at the start of that it's about looking at where you're at and 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 just starting small it's the little things you know yeah. it's the when somebody comes to you and says oh, i've stuffed up it's it's in that moment of how you respond to that and and what you want to do with that which goes to building trust it's not a a two-day retreat where we all catch each other from falling yeah. you know yeah. backwards yeah. it's it's in those <laughs> micro moments yeah. where and 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 Again, that humility, like you say, I mean, the, the awareness of that um, advertising boss there to, to not demand people come back in because the juxtaposition of that price is right now we're working with heaps of school principals where the Department of Education are just mandating, yeah. in New South Wales, are just mandating that compliance this, compli you know, and all this... They're, they're, they're placing demands on people with no sensitivity about what they've been through, the challenges that they're facing. Um, you could understand it if, if the training was around how to handle COVID yeah. <laughs> at a school yeah. or how to handle it, you know, when a kid presents with a run, you know, a cough and whatnot. But it's not. It's all this other stuff that they feel, oh, well, you know, you're, you're back at work now and I get on with this. You know, talking about literacy and numeracy targets after what they've been through, to me, shows a distinct lack of the awareness that that yeah. advertising boss yeah. shows. Which, when you think about the irony of that, the irony that a group of educators, presumably if you're in the education department, you know, yeah. versus an advertising, a corporate, mm -hmm. get the cash in, you know, I think that for me is, is the moments that we need, is that actually it's not domain specific, it's, it's in the moment and having that humility that this is sensitive 
the humility that you don't know everything you can't be the ideas yep. person so you we need everyone else and then how we manage that in those micro moments bringing people forward and i think you you've hit on a paradox here when you when you talk about you know contrasting the approach of uh, a bureaucracy like the department for education with you know what what would be seen as highly kind of um, commercial concern of an advertising agency I find it astonishing that the most hierarchical organizations that I work with now are the the ones in the public sector the ones who 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 are willing to try different things whether that's flattening their their hierarchies within the the, the organization or that they're you know they're, they're looking at a far more empathetic approach there's just a, a desire to think outside the box, which which is not there in the, in the education world, and as you rightly say, presumably those people in the department got there because they were teachers and they they got into teaching. I did this exercise yesterday with these educators I was working with, and I said, "What was your motivation?" You know, and and many of them kind of said, "I just wanted to help young people. I really like young people, and I wanted to help them." But you ask them now. What's your motivation? And it's just, I just need to get through this week. That's all I need to do. And I, I, I think it's another example of people who were user innovators, but now become producers and they lose that mindset and, and they become risk averse. The, the, all the things that drove them into education in the first place get thrown out of the window. And so, yeah, and, and so it's like this call to... I, I can hear when you're saying this. Let's get back to that. You know, let's let's get back in contact with our our values and our reason for for turning up each day because that that sense of fatigue and and that sense of demoralisation that you know those educators are sharing. That's I think you could go to pretty much any uh, any school community at the moment and people are feeling that. And and yeah, I guess being able just to without sounding too saccharine about this but embrace the power of us embrace the power of those teachers and 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 tap into that the meaning and the the purpose of of, of that as, as a start point rather than just plying you know plowing on with the next initiative that's been come from the top well down. exactly because at the end of the day you know what's it all for i we, we've got this scheme now operating in this country where because of the the youth unemployment as a result of the pandemic, although that is changing now, you know, the the, the resignation wave is a thing. So there there is shortages in lots of areas. But when they announced the scheme, I thought, well, yeah, I should put my money where my mouth is. I'll I'll give a young person a chance. Um, and so I've now got a bunch of applications. But each time, these young people are sending me a CV with all of the qualifications on it, and I say. I'm really not interested in that. As long as you're literate and numerate, I want to know what have you done? What's your portfolio of projects that you've, you know, that you've run? And the the this most striking example of this, this dislocation, I think, between what the education system demands of our young people and, and what they could bring to it if we could just unleash their their creativity, is is this kid Avi Schiffman, who, you know, he 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 created the COVID tracking website in the US at the start of the pandemic when the government signally failed to do, just like Boris Johnson failed to create a, a, what he described as a world-beating app, um, which wouldn't run on app, iPhones or Android phones. So fat lot of use that was. And, he, and this kid stayed up three days and three nights 
to create it. And it's now become the most authoritative source of information on COVID. So that Anthony Fauci says it's always the first place he goes to. This Avi has won the Webby Person of the Year. You know, it's like the Oscars for web design. And when I was asking him what he wanted to do beyond this, he said, well, I'd, I'd like to get into college, but I'll never get in. And I said, well, why not? And he said, because I've got a grade point average of 1.7. You know, the maximum's four. Mm. And he said, I'm, I'm a terrible student. And I said, you're not a terrible student. It's just the, the school isn't giving you the range of experiences that you're finding and creating for yourself. And I said, you do not want to go to a college that is only going to judge you by your academic results. Turns out you got a place at Harvard. So, you know, at least somebody gets it. <laughs> <laughs> so um, if people are keen to hear more about this and, uh, you know, want to get hands on the book and see more about what the agency is about, because I've, I've had a, a good look through the site and there's heaps of resources, yeah. there's heaps of tools, audits and all manner of things that you've, you've put together there. And I, knowing you, I get I, I get the sense there's more stuff coming as You're well. Dead right. We're doing a toolkit, just just a bit like your book. We, it, it, even yeah. when you kind of lay out what you think is sufficient to get people started, they go, yeah, but how could I do it? And so I thought, oh, yeah. God, okay, we'll spell it out. Here's a bunch of exercises you can do with your people. So, yeah, you're dead right. Yeah. That'll be coming out in the new year. Where do people need to go? What's the best uh, website or address or way of connecting? Yeah, it would be powerofusagency.com. Um because that's that's got all the information about the book, but it's also got heaps of videos, and we'll be adding to that. Because um, I, I don't know about you, Dan, but, but what I find is when I'm working with people who are trying to do the right thing, but for whatever reason, you know, they're either they're swamped or they just can't see the wood for the trees. Seeing other leaders talking honestly about the challenges that they've faced, it's it's gold dust, and so we, we want to create this kind of repository of resources but also i think people need to have a bunch of online tools that they can really that the diagnostic tools you know we, we talk about we've got a kind of entrepreneurial mindset well how do you know has anybody ever measured that is that just because you've got a couple of people who seem to have some good ideas so what, what we're trying to do is to bring a a, a bit of um, analysis to the the the, the ball game but at the same time, give enough inspiration. And you can also follow um, your missives on Twitter. And no. uh, is, you mean is, what, the, what's the, the COVID David Price Brexit rants? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at, at grumpyoldman.com. <laughs> <laughs> That's me. That's me. David Price OBE actually on uh, on on Twitter. And I'm going to make sure that all the links there to um, your book, the the agency site. I'm going to link to the Brewdog article that you wrote as well, and right. also um, y- your social media so people can stalk you in their preferred medium. Um, but Pricey, all that's left to say, mate, is thanks so much for uh, joining us. Um, I've had a, it's just been great catching up, if nothing else. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm sure that um, listeners have got plenty from this. So thanks, mate. But when are we going to have that beer, Dan? When are we going to sit in a room together <laughs> and have that beer? Uh, I think I think I can see you drinking red wine as we're doing this, oh, yeah, whereas yeah. I've well, had a cup of tea. It's late yeah. in the evening here. <laughs> well, it is. It is nine <laughs> o'clock where you are. Yeah. No, I, I'm hoping to get over next year and that'll be great. Yeah, beautiful. When you say get over, anyone listening, like you, you, you do actually do a lot of work um, 
in Australia. So again, if you're interested, if you're a, if you're an organisation, if you're a school, um, and and you're interested in David's work, then then definitely check out the uh, the, the links that we put in the show notes because. Um, I know lots of people that you've worked with and, and they're always uh, raving about the stuff that you do. And I still call Australia home. <laughs> <laughs> All right, get out of here. You've had too much rock wine. <laughs> See you, mate. Okay. Thanks very Take much. Care, Dan. Cheers, mate. If you found that conversation worthwhile and you'd like to dig into a little bit more of David's work, then all the links are in the show notes, not only to his books, but also The Power of Us Agency. And as we always say, if you found it worthwhile or interesting, there is a fair chance someone you know would find it worthwhile or interesting. So please, please, please share it as far and as wide as you can in your networks. By sharing it, by liking it, by commenting on it and subscribing to the podcast, you're able to help us get the word out to people who up until this point have never even heard of the Habits of Leadership podcast. So doing it, it's a small thing for you to do, but it's a really big thing for us. And we really do appreciate every single one of you that does that. So thank you. Of course, if you're interested in joining us in the academy, or if you're just interested in our work in general, or perhaps you'd like to suggest a, a guest for the show, or maybe you have a question that you'd like us to address in an upcoming Q&A, then as always, just head over to habitsofleadership.com and you can do all of that there. But until our next episode, thank you so much for listening. Take care. Take it easy.